Well, my name is John Sherrill, and I'm a pastor here at Fifth. If you happen to be a guest with us and we haven't met, let me add my welcome to that of others. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, we've been in a series taking us through the first four chapters of the book of Romans this fall, and uh, today marks the last of that fall series, and we'll, we'll pick up Romans again after the first of the year and do uh, chapters five through eight in the spring, but this is the last for the season. We took a little break last week. I don't know if you were here or not, but uh, Pastor Kunsang Chofel from Bhutan preached. And uh, I, I do understand that his accent might have been a little difficult to understand. So if you struggle with that, thank you. I, it was really important, I think, for us to have him here uh, because there's an amazing story there. Back in 1992, this congregation sponsored a brand new Christian radio outreach ministry in the country of Bhutan. At that point, there were no known organized churches in the entire country. And the only way to proclaim the gospel was really through the airwaves. So we, as a congregation, ponied up $40,000 and started this radio ministry in Bhutan through Words of Hope, uh, our partner. And for the next, I think it was three or four years, I think, I'm looking at people who might know this, but I think we were the solo supporter of that for a number of years at a very significant financial uh, amount. And over the past week, I've had some doings with Words of Hope and got more details in this story. Uh, in 90, 1992, no known organized churches. Today, there are almost 350 known organized churches. Uh, and this was one of the first Christian ministries in the country. We weren't the only Christians working there. But that's pretty incredible. Really, that's pretty incredible. So if we as a little, kind of a large, medium-sized church wonder, are we making a difference in the world? The answer is yes. You know, some, sometimes we are the ones who, who write the check to send others. Sometimes the Lord sends us. Uh, you know, sometimes we just pray. But the Lord is using his church around the world to build the kingdom of God, even in the hard places of the world. So we're, we're thankful for that. And I'm, I'm very thankful for Pastor Kunsung. He's an amazing and courageous leader. And now today, we come back to our, our series in Romans. And we're gonna be reading kind of a big chunk of scripture today. It's Romans 3.27 through 4.25. So it's, it's a large chunk. And th- this is where we're at in the story. In the letter of uh, his, his letter to the Romans, Paul introduces himself and then uh, restates his main theme, states his main theme, I should say, which is that in the gospel of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if you're new to the series, that, that doesn't mean that in the gospel we learn that God is righteous. It's that in the gospel we learn that God is willing to declare us righteous through what Jesus has done for us when we, when we access that by faith. And that's really the central message of the gospel. That is the good news of God. And Paul goes on to say that really, that, that's such an important message. All of time is split into two halves. Then, you know, before the cross, and now, on this side of the cross. Now we can see and know that God is this kind of God really desiring to credit to our accounts the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And we kind of have been surfing through that. This, this, uh, this righteousness is available to us by God's grace and through faith in Jesus. 
And that faith component is what Paul explores today. And it's important to know how he does this. He, he throws out three rhetorical questions and then answers them by using Abraham as an example. He kind of goes through those and answers those. And as we are declared righteous, counted righteous, God views us as if we were never broken, n- never in need of repair. That, that's what's really going on here. And says the Bible, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So that faith is what Paul is exploring today. It's a long passage. Uh, The page is listed in your pew Bible, but we're going to read today from the paraphrase known as the message, just for listening purposes. So tune your mind to this, get settled to listen to what scripture says, and as I dive into the sermon afterwards, I'll be using verses from the NIV uh, throughout the sermon. So let's listen now to the word of God. Romans 3, 27 through Romans 4, 25. So where does this leave our proud Jewish insider claims and counterclaims? Canceled? Yes, canceled. What we've learned is this. God does not respond to what we do. We respond to what God does. We finally figured it out. Our lives get in step with God and all others by letting him set the pace not by proudly or anxiously trying to run the parade. And where does that lead our proud Jewish claim of having a corner on God? Also, canceled. God is the God of outsider non-Jews as well as insider Jews. How could it be otherwise since there's only one God? God sets all who welcome his action and enter into it, both those who follow our religious system and those who have never heard of our religion. But by shifting our focus from what we do to what God does, don't we cancel out all our careful keeping of the rules and ways God commanded? Not at all. What happens, in fact, is that by putting that entire way of life in its proper place, we confirm it. So how do we fit what we know of Abraham, our first father of the faith, into this new way of looking at things. If Abraham, by what he did for God, got God to approve him, he could certainly have taken credit for it. But the story we're given is a God story, it's not an Abraham story. What we read in scripture is Abraham entered into what God was doing, and for him, that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. If you're a hard worker and do a good job, you deserve your pay. We don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that job is too big for you, and it's something that only God can do, and you trust him to do it, you could never do it for yourself no matter how hard or how long you worked, well, that trusting him to do it is what gets you set right with God by God. Sheer gift. David confirms this way of thinking or of looking at it, saying that the ones who trust God to do the putting everything right without insisting on having a say is one fortunate man. Fortunate those whose crimes are carted off, whose sins are wiped clean from the slate. Fortunate the person against 
whom the Lord does not keep score. Do you think for a minute that this blessing is only pronounced over those of us who keep our religious ways and are circumcised? Or do you think it possible that the blessing could be given to those who've never heard of our ways, who were never brought up in the disciplines of God? We all agree, don't we, that it was by embracing what God did for him that Abraham was declared right before God. Now think, was that declaration made before or after he was marked by the covenant rite of circumcision? That's right, before he was marked. That means that he underwent circumcision as evidence and confirmation of what God had done long before to bring him into this acceptable standing with himself, an act of God he had embraced with his whole life. And it means further that Abraham is father of all people who embrace what God does for them while they are still on the outs with God, as yet unidentified as God in an uncircumcised condition. It is precisely these people in this condition who are called set right by God and with God. Abraham is also, of course, father of those who have undergone the religious rite of circumcision, not just because of the ritual, but because they were willing to live in the risky faith embrace of God's action for them. The way Abraham lived long before he was marked by circumcision. That famous promise God gave Abraham, that he and his children would possess the earth, that was not given because of something Abraham did or would do. It was based on God's decision to put everything together for him, which Abraham then entered when he believed. If those who get what God gives them only get it by doing everything they are told to do and filling out all the right forms, properly signed, that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. That's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. A contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer and with plenty of fine print only makes you sure that you will never be able to collect. But if there's no contract in the first place, simply a promise, and God's promise at that, you can't break it. This is why the fulfillment of God's promise depends entirely on trusting God in his way and then simply embracing him in what he does. God's promise arrives as a pure gift. That's the only way everyone can be sure to get in on it, those who keep the religious traditions and those who have never heard of them. For Abraham is father of us all. He's not our racial father. That's reading the story backward. He's our faith father. We call Abraham father not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what we've always read in scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as father of many peoples. Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only God could do, raise the dead to life with a word, make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway 
deciding to live not on the basis of what he, saw, what he couldn't do, but on what he knew God would do. And so he was made father of a multitude of peoples. God himself said to him, you're going to have a big family, Abraham. And Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say it's hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's de decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. That's why it said, Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. But it's not just about Abraham, it's also us. The same thing that gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally hopeless. The sacrificed Jesus made us fit for God, set us right with God. This is the word of the Lord. It's a chunk, right? But you caught the flow. I mean, living in the faith embrace with God. It's an amazing thing. And Paul, in, in that chapter four, takes on three kind of big questions. Here, here they are. Is being saved by grace through faith a new idea or has it always been that way? It's kind of work or faith, right? Two, is this righteousness just for the Jews or for others too? That's the, is it dependent upon our religion kind of thing? Do you have to be circumcised? What's the deal? Then three, what about God's law? Doesn't this faith path to righteousness nullify it, kind of cancel it? Cancel all the religious stuff we've known before. So Paul starts with the first of those, you know, is this a new way? And he writes this, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Always a good place to begin, by the way. What does scripture say about the question we're asking? Uh, Paul then quotes Genesis 15, 6 to answer his question. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in Romans. In, in Genesis, it actually reads this way. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. If you're newer to the Bible, Abram would later be renamed Abraham. So we're talking about the same person here. Abram believed the Lord rather than choosing not to believe. And th this is the fundamental difference that Paul is articulating here. This is the difference between faith and unbelief. And there's a whole world of conversation here because all of us come to this very moment believing something. Even if we, we don't kind of buy the, the Christian understanding of things and, and the Christian uh, statements about what's really going on in the world, that Jesus is, is alive from the dead and that God loves the world and everyone in it trying to make things right, even if we don't buy that or, or maybe we're still working on that, we have some article of faith. You know, I have really good friends who, who uh, in essence, have rejected all kind of what they would call spiritual or religious claims. 
And they're really materialists. They say, you know, if you can't prove it by some scientific experiment, if I can't see it with my eyes, if we can't weigh it, uh, measure the volume of it, you know, if you can't do that, then it can't be known. You really can't know about spiritual things. But how do you know that that's true? How do you know that because you can't measure it, it can't be known? Is that not in and of itself also an article of faith? It is. Right? There are belief systems operating in all of us right now. And the only question is whether we're in touch with the object of our faith. Right? Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The, the story of Abram is the story of God reaching out to him and Abram receiving that and, and trusting. And by that, all we mean is kind of what the Bible calls the mustard seed of faith. Right? Just a little transfer of weight upon God. I'm not trusting entirely in my own two feet now. I'm beginning to rest my weight myself on God. Abraham did that and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a really important kind of Christian thing to understand because still floating around out there is this idea that in the Old Testament people were made right with God by behaving appropriately, by keeping the law perfectly. And in the New Testament, now it's kind of grace and faith and there are two different plans and whew, now we live by the new plan. Lucky us. Right? That's, that's just not true biblically. You know, Abram, the forefather of faith, believed God and it was credited to his account as righteousness. This, this has always been the way that people are restored to God by God's grace through faith in God. And remember what righteousness means. If you haven't been tracking with us through the series, righteousness biblically means straight or stiff in the sense of never being broken. And what what God does for us in Jesus is he declares us to be like that. He declares us straight, stiff, as if we had never been broken in the first place and were never in need of repair. The legal declaration, justification, that's what that's about. And if, if the heart of what God is doing for people is that God is declaring people perfect, that's been known all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis fifteen six is what Paul quoted. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what God does for people. And then when we fast forward to the letter of, of Paul to the Romans and we get to Romans 1.17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is the how. The what is God credits righteousness to people and the how is through the gospel, through what Jesus did for us. That's how this crediting takes place. And and Paul unpacks that a bit too. We, We heard it in the reading. If you work as an employee, you expect your wage. You've earned it. But in this spiritual sense, we don't do that. You know, there's no way to to work and gain spiritual credit according to the scripture. We just transfer trust to God and receive this gift. And this is what, this is what 
Abraham did, but what Abraham did was really misinterpreted in the Jewish tradition because oftentimes they would confuse Abraham's faith with his faithfulness. That was a very common misunderstanding, meaning they confused his faith with behavior that reflected faith. This is really important for us in the church too because I see this happening all the time. I mean, to what degree have we thought of faith as faithfulness? I mean, how and to what degree have we equated faith with behavior that reflects faith? Now, behavior that reflects faith is super important. We know this. James writes of it in his letter, right? You show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. I mean, behavior that reflects faith is really important, but it's not the faith. That's also important. A really good friend and mentor of mine once made the comment that the Bible has no adverbs to describe faith. It's just faith. Small as a mustard seed. Just some transfer of trust to God. The smallest bit. What more can we give, really? Right? Faith and works are different things. And Abraham learned this. He learned that faith is credited to us as, as righteousness. It's added to our account even when we did nothing to earn it. And thinking accounts is a really important thing because Paul turns then and quotes King David from Psalm 32. Look at this. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. There's a kind of negative and positive crediting that happens here. And if you're an accountant, accountant, don't don't hold me to accounting standards here. What, What David is saying in these verses is God doesn't count the negative of our sin against us. So when we cross a line that we know ought not be crossed or when we don't attain a standard we know we ought to attain. You know, the, this is sin. We miss the mark with God and this creates a negative balance in our account. And what David is saying here, what Paul is claiming and quoting David is that that which gets credited to our account zeroes out that balance and the negative doesn't count against us anymore and we say, hallelujah, Lord, oh my goodness. But the problem is a lot of Christians stop there. And think of what Jesus has done as simply bringing our negative account balance back to zero. A pastor in the Dallas area named Matt Chandler has written a very fine book called The Explicit Gospel. And he details the way he kind of came to understand this belief in his congregation. That Jesus took care of my past and all the wrong I've done back then, but really from now moving forward, it's kind of up to me to keep myself clean and right. And you know, if I fail at that, that's gonna harm my relationship with God and we might be out of sorts. And, and Chandler just goes on to explain, look, it's, it's a double crediting. It's not just that Jesus takes away the negative balance. It's that he pours into our spiritual accounts the perfect righteousness of Christ. Oh my goodness, Or in another pastor's language, uh, Tim Keller, he speaks of the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. 
You know, this, this resume that in God's eyes is absolutely perfect, and I'm switching metaphors now, but it, this is copying that resume and pasting it over ours, but our name is still at the top. Oh my goodness. I mean, however you want to talk about this, this, this double crediting of the gospel, not counting the bad against us and pouring into us the perfect righteousness of Christ, that's the thing. That is what God longs to do for people. Abraham learned that God is in the credit business and that, and that God wants to credit the account of every single person everywhere with this incredible gift, this, this deposit really guaranteeing that which is to come. You know, the way back to God has always been by God's grace and through faith. It's always and only been by faith. Nothing changed, Old Testament to New Testament. So this, this has been the way really forever. Not works, but faith. And then the second question Paul takes up, is this, is this just for Jewish people or for other people too? Paul put it this way, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So this this isn't just for Jewish people. You don't have to have the religious trappings to approach God. This is a heart thing with God. Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. I mean, this is, to any Jewish person, this would be mind-blowing. This is, this is God opening the doors to the entire world. And Abraham learned that God is in the credit business. It's God's desire to credit righteousness to the account of every person everywhere. That's what the gospel is about. That's the mission of God in the world. That is why this church exists, to worship God and to announce that good news, right? This is the the mission, the work that Jesus shared with all of us as followers of Christ in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, literally of everyone everywhere, God wants people to have this. And it comes to us by faith before any religious stuff we might do. And any sign of the covenant is a sign and seal of God counting people righteous by his grace and through their faith. And we don't confuse faith with faithfulness. One of my favorite quotes from this whole series from John Stott, a commentator I so enjoy, faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. So, it's for everybody. It's faith, not work. It's not about the religious stuff. This is for people, and God wants everybody to come home to him. And and finally, doesn't this kind of faith path to God nullify all the other stuff God told the Jews, the law? And Paul answers very directly. If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there's no transgression. See, Paul puts law and promise in opposition. We had had works and faith 
circumcision, uncircumcision, religious, non-religious, law and promise. And for Christians, uh, God's law has several purposes. And when, when we think of law, we think of righteousness depending on our obedience. And when we think of promise, we think of righteousness just depending on, on God's power and his faithfulness to his promises. So kind of which, which is this? How does this work? And Paul says, look, it's about the promise for multiple reasons. It's about the promise. The law serves some purposes. Here they are. For Christians, the purpose of God's law brings conviction of sin. And by law, we mean the Ten Commandments. We mean the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, brings conviction of sin. It serves a function in restraining evil. Really, as far as I know, any country in the world that this day operates by the rule of law is ultimately based on this idea that laws restrain evil. And that idea came from God's law. This is the civil use of God's law. And then finally, it's a guide to what pleases God, a guide to holy living. So being made right with God comes not by the law, but by God's promise. And the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring by grace. You know, freeing, because we can't work our way there. We can just take off the religious tool belt, you know, take off the religious hiking boots that we've been using to trudge up the mountain of spirituality. We don't need those. God came down from the top of the mountain to us at Christmas. That's the good news of the gospel. This is by grace. And that it might be guaranteed. Don't miss that. Right, this is by grace through faith that it may be guaranteed. Not only does God want to credit righteousness to our account, he wants us to understand that it comes with a guarantee. I mean, think of the other scriptures. 1 John 5, 13. These things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Or in the Gospel of John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Or 2 Corinthians 1.22, we've received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that which is to come. This is not, you know, holding to an unraveling thread of faith, friends. We stand on a solid foundation. Christ really did what he said he came to do. And by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we and all we love are secure. Not kinda. Secure. So Abraham learned all these things about faith and Paul wants us to know them too. Not works, it's faith, not the religious stuff. It's heart condition, how we're responding to God. It's not law, not endless sticky notes of stuff to do. It's promise, faith. You know, the grace of God interacting with our hearts, promise. This is all really good news. 
Right? This, is, this is not religion at the end of the day. This is, this is the grace of faith. The grace of being able to live in this world with that little tiny mustard seed of faith and yet experience a depth of security, not because we've earned it, not because we built it, not because we deserve it, but simply because the one who promised is both powerful and faithful. That is really good news. See, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, says Paul, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's, that's if you were here a couple weeks ago, that's the, the commercial term and the legal term again. Redemption, being bought back for God by what Jesus has done. Then the legal term, being declared by the judge of the universe to be perfect and unbroken in his sight. That's justification. And this, is, this is the whole deal. Right? This is the main thing in Christianity. And Romans has a way of bringing us back to this over and over again. The main thing. It's not about climbing the mountain to where God is. It's about trusting God. Just a little bit. It's not about religious philosophizing. This is historical claim. The invitation to trust comes to us by the historical claim that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he is alive right now. There really are just two responses to this. Unbelief or faith. Trust or avoidance, ultimately. I mean, faith is relying upon God. Not just thinking about God, but, but placing the weight of ourselves upon God. And as we do this, we're really just letting God be God. And we're kind of giving up that role. And that's a very freeing thing to give up. I mean, this is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Abraham learned that when he trusted God, he let God be God. And that's a much better way to live. It just is. Life doesn't suddenly give up all of its problems, but problems fall into perspective. As Abraham reflected on the promises of God, all his problems took their proper place because he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. All that's needed is this little mustard seed. I I don't know how long you've been connected with the church. I don't know your faith background specifically. I say that, no, I actually do know a lot of your faith background specifically. I don't know where you feel like you are today. Um... Maybe you're considering the claims of Christ and aren't, aren't really in. Maybe you feel like you, in a season of life years ago, your faith was a lot stronger and you're feeling bad about that and would like to get back to that. Maybe you kind of look around at other Christians and you think, well, I'm, I mean, I'm not like them. I could be a lot better. I don't, you know, 
I mean, all that's needed is a mustard seed of faith. If, if there's anything in you that's resisting moving your trust to God, even just a little bit of trust to God, I invite you to think and pray through what that's about. What's going on in you, really? Why not? Why not trust? I mean, what is it that you're trusting in now? Or if, if that's too big of a step, could you just imagine what it might look like to, to, in, your, in your spiritual self, right? To just take out a step and start to put some weight on God. Just a little bit of a transfer. And if you're willing to imagine that, how does that make you feel? And why? Where are those feelings coming from? What's that about? The invitation of God to every human being everywhere is to come back into a trust relationship with God and to receive this incredible gift of righteousness that God has offered us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, you are good. Thank you that you've extended grace to us. Thank you that you have pinned that invitation to the timeline of history uh, to be considered by us in a way very differently than we consider every other kind of spiritual belief or philosophy. Would you please pour out your spirit upon us? Help us as we wrestle with you. Give us the gift of faith. Enable us to just step out a foot and, and begin to place some weight down on you in trust. God, you are powerful and faithful Prove yourself as such as we do this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.